0: We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers. And we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is Christian Weedbrook, founder and CEO of Xanadu Quantum Technologies, a Canadian quantum company building quantum computers using photonics. Christian has over a decade of government experience, industry experience. He has a PhD from the University of Queensland, and one of the things we'll talk about is how Australia is a leader in quantum as well as a postdoc from MIT and the University of Toronto. So with that, let's turn to Christian. Thanks for coming in today. So quantum is or should be a hot topic, and I'm glad we're here to talk about it. Tell me what you think the opportunities are. A lot of times, people focus on the risk, and I want to focus on the opportunities. We'll talk about risk later, but.
1: yeah, Yeah, the risk is kind of what started this field, I would say, with uh, Shor's algorithm and the ability to crack codes. But really opportunities are, are really exciting. So you can kind of think of the, the different sort of verticals or areas that people typically talk about. So logistics would be one thing. You'd also think about pharmaceuticals and drug discovery. We at Xanadu, we work on the, the sort of third pillar, which is uh, material design quantum chemistry, and more specifically, next generation battery development. And the other one you often hear about is finance. And each of these sort of four verticals have many different things that you can kind of tease apart. I mean, quantum chemistry is such a big field. So the idea there is all of these are are typically very complex systems. That's kind of the characterizing feature of all these. And uh, what that means is traditional computers you know, they 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 can work in these areas. We often use uh, computers for all these areas of finance and drug discovery. But they're often approximations or you only deal with a small subset of the overall system. So the benefit of a quantum computing is really twofold. You can solve problems in principle much faster, stuff that would take... I don't know, uh, you know, six months, and you can do it in a few weeks. It de- it's always uh, dependent on the problem. But other things that would actually take thousands of years or millions of years, so intractable problems, and you can start making them tractable. And these exist in all these areas that I mentioned as well.
0: So I've talked to some of my colleagues about quantum because they seem to believe that it's years, if not decades, off. And yet you make it sound like it's something we can use now. What's the story?
1: Yeah that's a, that's a good question because quantum computers they exist now so you can go online Xanadu has an online quantum computer So they exist, but they're not powerful enough to start solving important uh, business problems. In fact, uh, there's been a number of demonstrations called quantum supremacy demonstrations. Uh, There's been three. Famously, the first one was a great demonstration by Google. And then after that, uh, a team in China, academic team in China demonstrated. And Xanadu also demonstrated it last year. So we were the first private company to demonstrate it and first company to put it online. So these are important breakthroughs. Essentially, what happens is you choose a very important, you choose a, 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 a problem that's well-defined and you do head-to-head race uh, against uh, a, a large supercomputer. So not your laptop, you'll go full out and, and use large supercomputers and go against your quantum computer press start on both and see which one finishes first. In our case, the problem we chose, not a business value at this point, but it actually would have taken 7 million years on the world's fastest supercomputer, which is actually based in Japan. Our quantum computer it's called Borealis. Borealis uh, solved it in two minutes. And so these are the sort of important milestones that you need to cross. First off, there's people that say, you know, whether it's a business problem or even esoteric math problem, it's never going to show something, particularly before we have error correction or fault tolerance, which is the stage we're now in the stage that quantum supremacy demonstrations were, were done. So that's important, but also it's important because it's a stepping stone to the bigger solutions, which are doing the same thing, but in these fields, drug discovery, material design and so forth.
0: Can you give us a quick overview of error, error correction and fault tolerance just, just for the, the audience? Yeah, for sure. So, not for me, of course. I know all and see all, but
1: maybe I, can I ask you the
0: question? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so, essentially, we're in the era now of pre fault tolerance and pre error correction. So, as the name suggests, error correction is uh, the correction of errors, and errors occur everywhere in life. Nothing is perfect, and even more so in quantum computers when you're dealing at the atomic or you know the very small atoms and photons uh, level where errors uh, occur because it interacts with our our world, which is the macroscopic world. So you need to correct errors. And also it's done classically as well. Chips that we have in our laptops and, and phones and so forth, they're very, very good. They barely ever break down, they, they can, you know, work for billions of years before there's a single error. But we for Wi-Fi and certain things like that, uh, you need error correction as well, because you're sending it over a communication line and the information gets disrupted. So what we do is essentially everyone is working towards error correction and fault tolerance. There's been important breakthroughs in these things. We're not there yet in terms of scalability, but it's needed in order to solve important business problems. So a simple example of an error correction would be you know if I say to you the letter A. One way to make sure that you hear what I'm saying is I may say A three or four times, A, 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 A. And so what you're doing is you're creating some redundancy. So you're pretty sure that I say A. Another one could be A for Apple, but you're you're reinforcing it through adding extra bits of information. And so you can actually do that with quantum systems as well. In fact, you need to do that. And so error correction allows you to, through redundancy, allows you to actually make sure that the answer you get at the end of the computation is actually correct. And fault tolerance really refers to once you have error correction, your gates need to be um, fault tolerant as well. So they need to be working in the right way. And the challenge is, is, as I mentioned with redundancy, the more, you know, the cool thing about error correction, fault tolerance, you're working with a, a faulty system, and you're adding more of this redundancy, it's still noisy redundancy, but you can now distill or create a cleaner version of the system that you can use. And that's pretty cool, creating noise. You're starting off with noise and you get something that's less noisy and manageable.
0: So would this be one of the technical obstacles to
1: progress in quantum? 100%. That's kind of the biggest holy grail in order to scale up. Often we say, instead of error correction and fault tolerance, we could also say we're all racing to a million qubits. And a million qubits allows you to have that redundancy. So if you've got a million qubits, you're saying a million physical or noisy-ish qubits, and that will give you, say, a hundred or a thousand very, very good qubits that you can use. Mm. And it's extremely difficult because one of the ways to look at it is you're adding this redundancy where you're adding more noisy components you have to get to a point where break even, which means that you've added enough now that you've overcome all the extra stuff that you've put there, which is not working the way you want as well. It's very difficult. There's been some great demonstrations head in that direction, but ultimately error correction is there to stop or counteract decoherence, which means noise, quantum noise. And for us in our photonic-based approach at Xanadu, that's loss, that's the biggest killer for us.
0: What are the obstacles in business to making greater use of quantum? I mean, you see companies like Ford and others, some of the pharmas, they say we're using quantum. What does that mean and what gets in the way of using it more?
1: Yeah, we've been around now for seven years. And it's very funny, the first year when we're trying to engage at that point with banks, we would spend a lot of time saying what quantum computing is. It reminds me when you look back at, uh, you know, Bezos going on, on t- TV in the early 90s and trying to, you know, the first question is, what is the internet? And it's very similar to that, but it's encouraging when you look back at history and see similar things like that. So. So yeah, seven years ago, it was, it was for us, it was about educating what is quantum computing. But the shift in the last seven years, and every year we see this increase, is the awareness from big corporations. Mm-hmm. So for us, you mentioned Automobile, we're working with Volkswagen, Rolls-Royce, and, and many others. They have small quantum teams. And that's one of the reasons why we want to work on it, because we don't have to convince them to work with us and other quantum companies. They have small quantum teams. They're still quite small, but they're building up. But the challenge really is they need to work on things. Every everyone has to convince someone to do something for us we have to you know raise money we've got to convince the investors internally the same sort of dynamics happen where small research teams have to do a pilot program and then sort of convince the higher ups that, look, this was successful, however they define that. And one of the ways they define that is really saying, look, we're gonna miss out if this does take off and if the promise of quantum computing is actually held, we'll be left behind because it's gonna be so disruptive. And so I think uh, that's the way to sell it internally. When we work with car companies, it's really still early days. Despite everything that you hear, a quantum computer still hasn't solved the problem of business value, outperform classical. You might as well just use classical compute. So, so that's where we are now, but there's a lot of patterning going on. So we pattern when we work with uh, our partners as well, do joint patterns, individual patterns. And you know we believe quantum computing, a million qubits is you know three to five years away, max. If that's true, patenting now, which can last 20 plus years, it's imperative for these companies not to be blocked out by other, in this case, other car companies as well.
0: Yeah, The disruption point is particularly important. Because when you think of the history of the internet, it shows up. Nobody thinks it's that useful. And 10 years later, some companies are gone. Other companies are completely different. But when you you go to investors, what's your pitch? I mean, what do you say? Bet on the future? what what do you tell them
1: yeah it's been an eye-opener for for us because the reality is so far we've raised 250 million dollars which is a lot of money by any standard Mm -hmm. but sometimes not by some of these these uh you know vcs yeah and we've done it not at once we you know our last round was a hundred million but often what they do is, we're, we're up front, we, we say this is a long term bet, if you, if you want revenue and all, all that it promises tomorrow, or, you know, more reality, so next year even, we, we can't do that. So we say, we, we have to choose the right investors, it's like getting into a marriage, you want to make sure you've got the right ones, and the ones that we've been able to work with, uh, these investors have a reasonable and long term view. So, for instance, our first investor led our seed and Series A round. That was OMAS, a pension fund. And so, you know, they have a, a long-term view. And uh, we've worked with the U.S. government as, as well, and, and the Canadian governments. They have long-term views, and they like to invest in, in com- um, companies that do this sort of forward-thinking technologies. The reality is, is we're up front. We say we're a moonshot. It's really a binary bet. In the early days, it definitely was. I think it's getting less so now. But it's still, you know, is the hardware there or not? Are you going to achieve fault tolerance and error correction? That part is binary. I think we will. I think a few companies will. And, and the um, the market is, is large enough to allow multiple companies that have reached a million qubits. But the pitch is really that. You, you always need that one or two believers within an investment firm that, that love quantum and uh, want to take a bet. The question really becomes on why Xanadu? They often know that there's a few different technologies, superconducting qubits, iron traps, photonics, and others. Why should we invest? We want to invest in quantum, but why should we invest in your approach? And so now the discussions are more about, look, this is this is our unique approach. It's photonics. These are the pros and cons. You've made a bet already. Some of our investors have made a bet in, say, superconducting qubits. and now they're looking to do a portfolio approach, which is very similar to the US government as well and the Canadian government.
0: So when you look at government support, what what's the policies that you need around quantum to make it keep moving? What are the things that you would want to see governments do?
1: The, there's two things that come to mind. And, and, and it's the same for, for you know, the community at large, whether you're getting government assistance or not, funding. We need to see more and more funding. Mm. Canada and the US has done very great work. We, we've got great collaboration. And um, recently, we, we received uh, $40 million from the Canadian government. So that was big compared to Canada. doesn't usually do that. So there have been uh, long That's on a big bet. Yeah. That's a huge bet, yeah. That would be the equivalent of, say, $400 million bet from the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's it's huge, and we're very grateful. And looking now to open an office in, in D.C. Uh, mm-hmm. for Xanadu and work more closely with uh, the U.S. government and its – you know, different departments as well. But I, I think it's funding is, is the big one. You can't be left behind. You look at all the different countries now. Australia, for instance, is, is doing amazing things. Yeah. Europe as well, particularly Germany, the EU, UK as well, and obviously China is a big one as well. So this technology will change the world. We often think about computing is, as being proportional to innovation. Imagine if we didn't have digital chips, you know, classical chips, like what would our world be like? I mean, it'd be so different. And we believe that this proportionality to innovation will continue through quantum computing. And, you know, obviously in the next three to five years, but at the end of this century, we will think, how do we do without quantum computing? How did we do without the internet? You know, those sorts of transformational things. So so that's a big one. Funding, the continued need to, to fund organizations. Not just Chips Act is good. It has a part for quantum as well. but but also the building of foundries is very important, like ones that are tailored to the materials Mm -hmm. needed for for quantum computing as well. And the other big, big area is obviously talent. I mean, this is not like, you know, you have an Nvidia chip and a new chip comes out and you take the old one and put a new one in. You need to actually have the expertise to understand this. This ultimately goes back to the fundamentals of the mathematics of quantum physics. You know, so you're not taking out an old chip and putting in a quantum chip. And with our work with the US government, with the Canadian government and organizations, it's really understanding where are your biggest computational bottlenecks? Can a quantum computer help? Where mathematically is it slowing down classically? And then getting that math of quantum physics and joining together. So that takes a lot of different talent. For instance, in our hiring, in the early days, we hired a lot of, I think we've got 100 PhDs, which is remarkable. Um, (laughs) More than here. More than here? Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Any looking for work here? Uh, probably not in stuff you want to have them do. Yeah. <laughs> so so this this talent is a big thing. And Canada has uh, recently in their budget, last year or the year before, announced $350 million for universities. Quantum computing came out of universities, um, all aspects of it. And for us, the PhDs, as I mentioned, there's 100. But now we're starting to, to hire more engineers. So that's a good sign. Mm-hmm. We're, we're hiring people from intel nvidia so now the the talent is becoming less specialized and more broad but still for instance uh, we've just been talking about xanadu's hardware our software is also key that's an easy way to actually easier way to get involved we have our software being part of a curriculum of uh, 50 universities around the world so when quantum computing is taught in universities they'll have a small one or two lectures on quantum programming and they'll choose our language penny lane other programs as well, but teach them that. And so it, it's just really critical. I mean, if you're going to want to know how to actually program these things, you're going to make sure you're, you're investing in the education.
0: We've had two chief scientists, IBM's chief scientist and Australia's chief scientist. The Australians have done amazing work yes. in building a quantum workforce. And what makes a country decide they want to get into quantum? Why is Canada a leader, for example, and Australia?
1: Yeah, you'd probably... Uh because it's the talent has come from academia, which is where I came from as well, Australia, where I did my studies, uh, Singapore, and also Canada, those governments decided, say, 20 years ago to invest in the university system and invest particularly in quantum technologies, which in- includes quantum computing. It also includes sensing and includes communication and security as well so they just decided i'm not sure the reason why 20 years ago they decided they had the talent there people were drawn to it i myself was drawn to um things like quantum teleportation i thought it sounded cool quantum security it sounded pretty cool as well but now the key thing is particularly in in Australia and and, uh, Canada, is we don't want to see a brain drain. We don't want to see, you know, we're so close to the US, it's it's good for for the US, but we also want to start commercializing and, and taking all this stuff that the government's been investing. Look at Canada, there's the famous Institute, Perimeter Institute, also IQC Institute of Quantum Computing. Those are in Waterloo. It's important now that companies like Xanadu and many others are actually trying to commercialize this and, and take it out of the so-called lab and now putting it into businesses' hands.
0: I want to come back to coding, which is a bit wonky, but before I do that, we are in Washington. So I have to ask two questions. How do you think the U.S. is doing? And then we'll ask about China, but do the U.S. first. How are we doing?
1: The U.S. is doing well. I think if you look at Canada, Australia, and the U.S., they're all doing well. But I do think more needs to be done, which is not a surprise. Yeah. More funding, more talents, training. Often, I think um, th- there's many levels on this. These are all the levels we target. We t- target and, and work with policymakers, both in the US and, and in Canada. Mm-hmm. They're starting to get it now, which is really key. You know, this this conference I'm at uh, this week is really important to meet with government officials. And it's, getting, it's, it's mirroring the VC aspect, where it's like, we know we want it now. So tell us why your approach is the best. And that's, that's the key. And often, often, they'll, they'll take many approaches. I would suggest that, from my very humble opinion, the US takes more of an approach in, in have like a portfolio approach in the technologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, superconducting qubits is very popular and a great approach. But look at more things like photonics and other things. Sometimes it's a technology you don't expect to sneak up on you to be one of the dominant ones as well. The US has always not been too favorable for quantum security. I uh, Think quantum key distribution, QKD. And I think it's behind in that, to be honest. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, China. You mentioned China. China is definitely ahead when it comes to quantum security sort of things. So th- there's a sm- well, that's bad news. <laughs> it is. There's a, there's a small distinction there where a quantum computer is actually a device that cracks the internet in principle. It can't yet, but the technique that you know nation states are doing is download the information now and decrypt later. Sure. And so. Let's say a quantum computer that's powerful enough to crack the internet. It's unlikely to be this decade. But let's say it's the early 2030s. That's less than 10 years away. Well, there's a lot of information military, government records, medical records. These things need to last, in some cases, a lifetime. And so, you need to start protecting this now. And there's, there's, two, there's a couple of ways to do it. One is through quantum key distribution. So that's using quantum hardware to, pr- in principle, provide really strong near-unbreakable security. And the other one is to replace the codes that the internet is secured by, RSA and elliptic curve, with new post-quantum codes that a quantum computer kind of looks at and says, we don't know how to, to actually crack this. So that's important. and And the commercialization of that, China is ahead. A government in in china years ago now actually put a qkd network from beijing south all the way down to shanghai i forget how many many you know it's a lot of commerce yeah 800 mm. or so it's, yeah. it's a lot and they're actually so the chinese government has been pushing that us government less so as well for, for many years it's always typically been hard to get certain organizations interested in the qkd aspect of it so the quantum security but they are putting forward a lot of uh, nist is working on the standards when it comes to post-quantum so i should say they're putting a lot of work into post-quantum so these codes but less so in qkd and there's pros and cons with with both of them
0: so when you talk about coding what do you need in a workforce what are the skills you're teaching is it physics is it math is it engineering what what what's where would you say we should focus? Where have other places focused?
1: I would say in terms of the coding or the quantum programming side of things, the good thing that we have with Penny Lane and and IBM has Qiskit and, and most mm. of them is we've all built our programming or coding on top of uh, Python. Mm. So that that was a key one, because it, it's less complicated than other, uh, you know, say, C++, and that's easier for people and developers. They already know it and so forth. so. It, Given that it's built on that, we can actually uh, start using it. People can start using it now. So people in in high school learn. So it's it a Python
0: it. derivative. This is a little wonky, but we better <laughs> just. A,
1: yeah. It's one of my hobbies. Is ah, okay? You know,
0: what code are you built on?
1: Nice. Now, well, have you started using Penny Lane yet? No, I've not started using Penny. Okay. I tried IBM. Let me try KISS. Good. Okay, nice. It was too hard. Was, <laughs> <laughs> well. You know, I think to to alleviate the hardness is, is at least it's built on something that's familiar. Mm. But there is a learning curve, for sure. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you're now programming quantum computers, whatever type of quantum computer. You, you're programming and using different things like superposition entanglement. So you've got these very different ways of thinking about the, the code. But, you know, us and other companies are making it easier. So I I think, you know, the first step is to have it in more university courses around the U.S. Canada is one of the leaders in that now. So I think the U.S. should be doing more of that. The other thing, too, when I was in, as I mentioning off-air, I was in Korea. They're actually now doing graduate courses as well. Mm. And the U.S. is, I would say, is is ahead in that. But making sure now that it's not just academic studies, that if they're they're having uh, actual majors in quantum computing, majors in quantum information. And I know that's happening. It's happening here and also in Canada. Uh, but making sure that push for that continues as well is very key, because that's the workforce. That's how it's training. And making more and more universities do that. I think it's naturally happening. I think more people are understanding about this. But somehow having more, you know, we have coding challenges. And we, we do all this public outreach. So doing more of that as well.
0: So I got to talk to the person who's the head of the mischiefs program in china this was a a while ago and he trained in germany with the head of google's quantum program which is kind of funny they both had the same professor One question about China is, how much are they dependent on that Western education, particularly at the graduate level? Have they gone beyond that? Are they self-sustaining? Or do they still need access to Western universities? Putting Mm -hmm. aside the question of whether or not bifurcating universities is a good idea, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's a topic that comes up because in the past, they have needed access to Western education. Still true?
1: I, I would say it's still true, but it's it's changing significantly. So when I was in academia about 15 years ago, we were all working with and collaborating with a lot of academics would go and visit, they would come here, a lot of exchange of ideas. Also, as you mentioned, a lot of people at that time, 10, 15 years ago, were actually trained in the West, for sure. But I would say that's starting to change. The biggest group, and it's a very big group in China, is led by J. Wei Pan, Mm-hmm. And uh, he was trained, I believe. Believe it was Zeilinger, who won the Nobel Prize in the last mm-hmm. couple of years. But now he and his team are world class. So they mm-hmm. have they have offices in in Hefei and also in, in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And so they are equivalent to to anyone in the West for sure. But that is not completely an isolated incident. But for the most part, there's many other teams. You know, we, we read the papers of what comes out there. Quantum is very popular there, is, uh, along with AI, but I don't know if there's um, too many on that standard, whereas in the West, uh, we have many people that are very, very good. So I think it's it's slowly changing. Uh, so it just depends how many people get led in and trained with um, the team in Hefei and, and Shanghai with Pan's group. Um, but still, they have a more of a long way to go when it comes to how many of these centers of you know that are actually really excellent do they have and and the the west is is far ahead
0: we've talked about the the global distribution of quantum research and we've talked about china and canada and australia you were just in korea what's the picture what's the global picture and when you think of leading centers where do you think
1: so yeah breaking it down say in, in education or academia canada has some of the best, the U.S. as well, when I think of the talent, Australia, they're very, very good as well. So if you look at historically, I, I think the people that were laying the groundwork in the late 90s and early 2000s, they're still very, very strong. Mm-hmm. Germany has some very good teams, the U.K. Yeah, so I would say it's it's very global. Now, if you sort of move to the the policies of of the governments, mm-hmm. At the conference uh, this week, we're hearing about all the different government initiatives to encourage investments, both in the training of people, all the way up to the commercialization through startups. Australia, all the ones I've just mentioned, the US, Canada. Uh, Another one you may not know, uh, Denmark. (laughs) I didn't. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, They've been putting a lot of money into it. There's some very good people at, uh, I think, DTU there. We work with them as well. And the other, Germany, very, very Mm -hmm. good talent, UK as well. The EU is putting billions of dollars into quantum as well. So in terms of the funding by the government, so all the usual suspects, and and as you can imagine, they're correlated with where the the talent lies as well. So all the previous countries I mentioned, the governments are putting money in. The the other thing I think is important to look at is uh, foundries. So that's an interesting one. We're a fabulous company kind of like Intel, where we do all our chip designs in-house in Toronto and send them off to different foundries. We work with AIM Photonics in New York State, for instance. They're a great collaborator with us. We also work with foundries in, in Europe and, and elsewhere as well. But that could be a key differentiator. Does elsewhere include Taiwan? No, not, not at the moment. <laughs> <Okay>. Just curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But this is, this is a key thing too. At the moment, quantum companies, including us, we really just work with the sort of small and medium tier R&D centers, because you don't need a mass manufacturer. Having said that, Xanadu does work with Global Foundries, which is one of the tier uh, tier ones, also in New York State. But when quantum takes off and you get closer to a million qubits and you want to commercialize, uh, and and mass produce these chips. That becomes an interesting problem. At the moment, uh, quantum companies, including us, we're not the main source of revenue by far for, for global foundries and other ones, the tier ones where you wanna mass produce. So that becomes an interesting one. What that means is you're not high priority. What that means then is it takes longer to actually get your chips back from the foundries, which, which is all makes sense. But the good thing about photonics is that we can actually work with the large foundries. So. You know the U.S. government. I wonder if they're thinking about not just photonics, which is nice, but iron traps and superconducting qubits. Well, when they want to mass produce, what do they do then? Because they can't go to the large foundries—at least the way it exists now. They don't have the tools to do that. So that's another thing globally: is who has the future dominance in the foundries? Because uh, you know, superconducting qubits, iron traps, and our type of photonics—it's not usually done in traditional foundries. So that's a very interesting issue to be thinking ahead as well.
0: How close are we to the point where we'll need mass production? How close
1: are we to the million qubit mark? A million qubits. for what we've been saying in interviews and publicly, for Xanadu, we're aiming for 2026,
0: 2027.
1: Wow. Mm -hmm. But we have a strong caveat that I I would say it's definitely doable. We like to have optimistic stretch goals, but we may not make it. It could be a 50-50 chance, but not long after that. If you look at the roadmaps of... Say IBM and, and Google, it's around 2030, but you know to give you a, a rough idea, I would say 20 anywhere from 2026 to 2030, uh, which is not too far away and not too much of a spread, and so that that's when we all are planning to get to a million cubits. Again, that that's the current thinking and the progress. You know, so far at least in Xanadu's point of view, we've been hitting our milestones, hardware milestones, every year now, so we're on track.
0: Mm -hmm. We had IBM here probably a couple months ago, a month ago, and I was trying to talk them into bringing the chandelier, which they didn't do ultimately, but you brought up hardware. Tell us about the different flavors of quantum hardware and where you fall, where others fall, what people need, because I think that's the coding part. In some ways, coding, because it's intangible, is a little easier to, to create a capacity, but what are we looking at when it comes to hardware?
1: Let me do something uh, probably not supposed to do, but I'll start with the challenges with our approach. You always hear, (laughs) it's so easy to say, you know, why we're the best. (laughs) But um, our biggest challenge is with loss. So really that's the, it's really the only thing that's preventing us from scaling up that we still need to master. So loss is there with fiber optics. So we have light on chip, we also have fiber optics, light passes through both of these things, there's loss every certain centimeter, there's loss. Even when we stream videos or do video calls, you know, you actually have light going through the underneath the city of fiber optics and and there's loss there too. Not It's not just a quantum effect but it gets more annoying on the quantum level. So that's our biggest challenge, and there's ways to overcome that, better chip designs, working with foundries to get better, fabrication processes, error correction and fault tolerance, that's why we need it for our case. So that's our biggest challenge. Now the good thing about photonics is to get to a million qubits, you're gonna have to, pretty much no matter what approach you do, you're gonna have to use light as the intermediary between, so if you've got two iron traps, they can only go up to a certain amount, let's say 100. Then you got to, in order to get to a million, you have to have a number of these hundred iron traps to actually connect them. And you connect them using light. Superconducting qubits, same way. You see the big chandelier, they're getting bigger, but at some point it has to stop and you need a few more chandeliers and you connect them, typically using light. So our thesis is, well, if that's the case, what better way to actually connect to quantum computers using light if you're already using light? And um, that's why we believe our approach is a really good, approach in order to scale up to a million. Because you're going to have a small data center. It'll be, say, half a football field. You'll have 100 or 1,000 server acts. And they're all talking to each other using light. So that's a big benefit. The other one with a chandelier, let's say you have a football, half a football field size only 10% of that actually has these chandeliers. So we do have some cooling. But where we compute and we actually create entanglement, all that sort of stuff, it's actually at room temperature. Mm. Why that's important is because it's a race to a million qubits, and the iterative process is, at least for us, it's much easier when we're talking about the iteration process because IBM and others, they're doing very, very great work. But if you look at the chandelier, the chip is at the bottom of the chandelier and it can take depending on a few factors, a day or two to cool down, then you run and test the chip, do whatever you have to, and then a day or two to heat it back up and take the chip out and put in another one. For us, so that's up to four days just to take the chip out and put in it, including the runtime. For us, it'll take up to 10 minutes to take the chip out and put a new chip in, because it is literally, at room temperature, you can see it. There's, there's nothing, it's not in a container, it's on a bench and so forth. So that that's a real benefit as well. And, and the final benefit is, is really the ability to leverage the telecommunication industry. We didn't have to invent a laser, we didn't have to invent fiber optics and all these optical components. It's not as easy as that, But, you know, we have to do a lot more. But thankfully, we didn't have to do any of this early stuff. So, again, it's about iteration. It's about saving money. And those things are great. But I I, I always try to emphasize is that the the loss is the big thing for us. And
0: so I was going to ask, and I don't think I have to now, how much you can piggyback on the existing network infrastructure. And that might be an advantage. But maybe what we should do is ask, What's next in quantum? What do you think like if if we were doing this a year from now, what would have changed?
1: More, I, I would say beyond a year, you know, we've talked about getting to a million qubits, but then you break up that that and you're gonna see incremental progress, important incremental progress over the coming, say, three to five years. And that will include in the next year. But It fits into the topic of error correction and fault tolerance, as we talked about before. We're going to want to see more progress along those lines. We're going to want to see it from many different angles. From the theory, are there better ways to different codes that we can use? And each company, each approach will have different approaches because the noise model is a key thing there. And also the improvements on the hardware is a big one, obviously. But really, you, we're going to see solid improvements over the coming years in error correction and fault tolerance until we hit a million qubits, which is, you know, equivalent to achieving a certain milestone in error correction and fault tolerance. But it's all about that. Previously, you know, showing quantum supremacy was a big milestone, which us and China and, and Google famously did. And the next thing is is the work towards scalability, which is error correction and fault tolerance. And, and I guess the, that's implied is the other thing I mentioned is connecting... Two different quantum computers using light, or, or you know, some some approach that's proportional to, to having a light-based uh, system.
0: Yeah, I think that I, we didn't emphasize enough how important the room temperature part is because that's one of the things you always hear about quantum as well. It needs to be cooled to zero Kelvin or something. I don't know, mm-hmm. but so the room temperature thing is a big deal. The other thing that may not have leapt out at people is the ability to depend on the existing infrastructure. And the fiber optic photonic infrastructure. And so that's, it's not plug and play exactly, but it's kind of like plug and play.
1: Yeah, that's true. And uh, you mentioned pre-existing infrastructure. Another thing that doesn't get talked about enough, which also goes into the progress I mentioned, a lot of FPGA or GPU work is needed Field-gated programmable arrays. Did I get that right? That's right. Field-programmable gated arrays, sorry. That's right, gated arrays. But essentially the, the key point there is, non-quantum chips, and they play a big role. They're also playing a big role today. As you want to simulate, well, what's the best code, error correction code you want to use? Well, you want to simulate the system and and get some ideas about it. Well, you can't simulate with too many qubits that are fault-tolerant or logical because it becomes intractable quite quickly. So you've got to use some techniques, and that's a good thing because if it wasn't tractable, you wouldn't need a quantum computer. So there's going to be a point where a quantum computer is really hard to simulate, and it's already happening now once you add in all the uh, error correction and fault tolerance components. But there's a, a big thing that needs to be done in terms of making, you know, do you need only a few FPGAs or GPUs, or do you need like a, a cluster, or do you need even more of that to do the error correction, the decoding side of things? So people often just think about, you know, a quantum computer, but a lot of ancillary classical compute is needed, and uh, really ties into maybe maybe you need a small data center for that classical data center as well. So not a lot of people are talking about just what the constraints are on traditional classical compute in order to build a quantum computer.
0: What chip companies do you work with? You mentioned uh, Global Foundries, NVIDIA, because when you say GPUs, GPUs. who, who are the guys you work with?
1: Yeah, so there's two things here for for our, to, yeah, our chips fabricated. We work with global foundries. We work with Aim Photonics as well, mm-hmm. Lygentech in Switzerland, uh, IMAC in Belgium. IMEG, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now on the GPU side of things, uh, Nvidia is, is is one we work with, and they, they have a they're starting their quantum play as well. We talked about large organizations; they're getting into it. Uh, the idea there is, as I mentioned, they have a, this product called Q Quantum, which allows you to um you know runs quantum simulations on their gpus and that's kind of the software that that helps you mm-hmm. do that which penny lane has a, a connection to as well but mostly for the gpus which as you know they're getting harder and harder to get as well but we would use our indirectly we would use uh, nvidia's gpus so uh Supercompute time mm-hmm. aws um, uh super in, in the governments in canada and also the us as well
0: so what's next for the company what do you think uh, you're looking forward to doing
1: I would say, for for us, each day, every minute, every year, ultimately, is about conquering loss. So I I said to someone the other day, it's like, oh, we want to hire some more people. And my first thing is, can they help us reduce loss? (laughs) Like, it's an abstract sense. But everyone is working towards reducing loss. So each you know, fiber to chip, you couple those together, how much loss is that? We need to reduce it by 10. Propagating loss on a chip through the waveguides, we need to reduce that. Like travels through fiber, we use that as a storage or a memory. We need to reduce that. So really, every day we're obsessed about reducing loss. Did I miss anything? Any final words or uh, parting shots? One last thing I thought that I'm surprised you didn't ask it as a first question. And maybe I can ask you, do you know where the name Xanadu came from?
0: Uh, Isn't it a novel
1: from the 30s or something? Uh, That's a new one. We get a lot of different answers. We get The House or The Mansion from Citizen Kane is is a good one. Kubla Khan poem, but no. Of course, Kubla Khan. But it's actually named after the Living Newton-John song. (laughs) <laughs> and when, when I when I go to uh, Korea and Japan, it, they they know that like that's they don't say anything else. Is hey, is that the Olivia Newton John song? So it's quite quite funny. It's a, it was a yeah. hit there, I guess. I would have thought
0: the Kubla Khan poem, but there, what was there is we don't have to go into literature. But uh, didn't ask about the name. That's true. Uh, thank you for doing this. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.